My name is Diego Zuluaga, and I am the Associate Director for Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute at our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Now, the topic of digital currencies has been in a great deal of flux and discussion for the past two, three, four years or so. And really, since the beginning with uh, the launch of Bitcoin in 2008, uh, more recently, uh, the conversation has revolved around central bank digital currencies and plans by the People's Bank of China, uh, discussions at the Bank of England, uh, and in various other fora about the prospect of central banks launching their own forms of digital payment and greater access for households to central bank accounts. In the United States, the conversation has increasingly gained urgency with the coronavirus pandemic the economic emergency that has resulted from government-mandated lockdowns and the general health emergency has shown, once again, the slowness and inadequacy of the U.S. payment system. Millions of U.S. households continue to wait for their stimulus checks, and they will wait for the checks to clear even after they cash them for a few days. That means additional cost. It means a cost of financial inclusion. And in a country in which 8.4 million households continue to lack a bank account, that is a significant burden for a lot of people. Now, in response, some have argued that digital currencies, meaning in the specific case of central bank digital currencies, the provision by central banks of retail deposit accounts can address this problem, increase financial inclusion, perhaps even increase financial stability in a relatively low cost to the central bank and to the taxpayer. Proponents say that this is the natural way for financial innovation to go and that this will leave continued room for the private sector to innovate. Opponents, on the other hand, worry about privacy and the impact that the development of central bank digital currencies might have on competition and innovation on the private side of the financial economy and perhaps even an impact on credit allocation and financial stability. It's a heated discussion one that has now reached Congress with a number of different bills having dropped, uh, proposing the creation by the Fed of retail deposit accounts that would be either intermediated by private banks or directly provided to households. This is a discussion that the Cato Institute is very glad to join. We have been doing a lot of work on the topic of digital currencies, and of course we follow central banking closely at our center as well. And so I'm very glad to introduce a distinguished panel of both experts and market participants to talk about the prospects for digital currencies and who, whether the public sector or the private sector, is better placed to deliver them. I will ask each of our speakers to give opening remarks for five minutes, after which there will be a moderated discussion guided by me for another 30. And then we will deal with audience questions for another 30 minutes. Please do submit your questions either on the event page or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCovid, which is the hashtag we've been using for the series of policy discussions that the Cato Institute has been hosting online uh, around solutions and policy remedies to the various ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic. With that said, I'm very pleased to introduce our first speaker of the morning, Professor Morgan Ricks, who is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University where he studies financial regulation. Very relevantly for our discussion today, Morgan is the co-author of A Public Option for Bank Accounts or Central Banking for All, which makes the case for Fed-provided retail deposit accounts. 
Morgan was previously a senior policy advisor and financial restructuring expert at the U.S. Treasury Department, where he focused primarily on financial stability initiatives and capital markets. Before that, he was a risk arbitrage trader at Citadel Investment Group, so he also has relevant private sector experience. Morgan has been one of the chief advisors to a lot of the congressional proposals for the creation of what he calls Fed account. And I'm very glad uh, that we are able to have him make his case this morning in front of our audience. Thank you, Morgan. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Diego. And uh, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so as Diego mentioned, I've been advocating the idea that the Fed uh, should offer bank accounts to the general public. And this can be thought of as a way of doing digital dollars uh, or central bank digital currency. And of course, as everyone on this panel knows, and probably most viewers, the Fed already offers uh, bank accounts, uh, and they're great. They offer, in normal times anyway, high interest, uh, instant payments, and they're fully government-backed. No matter how large the balance, there's there's no need for deposit insurance or anything like that. But the Fed, like other central banks, uh, offers them only to an exclusive clientele consisting basically of banks and uh, and government entities. Um, so this is in striking contrast to physical currency. Physical currency issued by the central bank is an open access resource uh, available to all, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, availability of the other type of base money, uh, account money at the central bank is a special le legal privilege. So, so together with some co-authors, I wrote a paper, as Diego mentioned, that uh, exploring this, uh, whether that dichotomy at the center of our monetary framework can be uh, justified. And, uh, and one way of thinking about this is, look, you know, the Fed today is, is in the process of really expanding uh, access, so to speak, of the, to the left side of its balance sheet, the asset side. It's extending, um, it, it's extending credit to uh, places where it hasn't gone before. So this can be thought of as sort of a right-hand right, right hand side analog, the liability side of the balance sheet. And so as Diego mentioned, it's gotten some attention on Capitol Hill and, and uh, my co-authors and I uh, have, uh, ha have helped out with some of the uh, statutory text here. And, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's taken on, it's gained interest in the context of stimulus or relief payments under the CARES Act uh, to deal with the current uh, 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 public health and economic catastrophe that we're dealing with. That wasn't the genesis of the idea. This is a paper we wrote a couple of, of years ago, but it does have maybe some special relevance in the current uh, in the current environment. I would point out, you know, this. Other people have have. Um, we're, we're not the first to suggest the idea. The first I've been able to find is James Tobin, who in the '80s wrote. Um, uh, 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 suggested in a paragraph in one of his papers that uh, the, the Fed should offer um, what he called deposited currency, but it essentially amounts to a, a, a bank account at the central bank. Um, and and again, as Diego mentioned, this this fits in uh, with the, with the broader central bank digital currency discussion that's really taken off uh, in the past couple of years, and particularly after uh, Facebook's Libra announcement, which uh, which as as uh, as uh, Jay Powell mentioned uh, a couple of months ago, really lit a fire under uh, under the Fed and other central banks. So, so the the idea is to have a public option the, the, for Fed the Fed to offer uh, to all U.S. residents and businesses and other institutions 
the option to have a bank account at the Fed, and we call them Fed accounts. And they would work just like the same as regular bank accounts. You'd have a debit card, direct deposit, and bill pay features, uh, access through a web portal, and so on. Uh, but they'd also have all the great features that central bank accounts have, meaning uh, meaning uh, they would pay the interest on excess reserve rate, which uh, generally speaking is higher than, uh, than the rest of us are able to get on our deposit accounts, at least under normal circumstances, uh, as well as instant payments between Fed accounts and, and, uh, and unlimited government backing, no matter how large the, the balance. So we're talking about really pure sovereign money, uh, which isn't available for, uh, for, you know, if you're Google and you have $100 billion of cash, uh, there's really no such thing as cash for you, right? You own a bunch of different types of deposit equivalents, um, uh, but you're not going to put it all in a, in a single bank account, that's for sure. Um, so uh, we explore in the paper and we've argued, my co-authors and I, that there would be you know, a lot of benefits, potentially transformative benefits to this. The most obvious one is financial inclusion. As Diego mentioned, we have a large unbanked and underbanked population in the U.S. If Fed accounts were... Uh, offered with no fees and no minimum balances, uh, this could be a, an excellent way to bring uh, bring the unbanked into the financial mainstream. Um, you know, other countries have much higher bank account, or the developed economies at least, uh, have much higher bank account penetration than we do in the U.S. We're really an outlier in this regard. Uh, in, in some places, such as Canada, that's because they have what amounts to a universal service mandate on the banking system. We don't do that here. So in the absence of that, direct public provisioning uh, is another way to go. Um, uh, payment speed and efficiency would be improved. Uh, we have a very uh, painfully slow payment system in the U.S., and I can talk a little more about this if, if the other participants or questioners want to. Uh, we think this could put downward pressure on debit card interchange fees, which would be great for businesses, particularly small businesses. Uh, and then, you know, financial and macroeconomic stability. Uh, you know, the, 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 the main source of acute macroeconomic disasters arising from the financial sector is institutional deposit substitutes uh, that are susceptible to run-like behavior and one of the major drivers of, of this idea, uh, a major impetus for myself and my co-authors was thinking about ways to crowd out uh, unstable deposit substitutes. And we saw another episode of instability in this area back in, uh, back in March. And finally, monetary policy transmission is another benefit. You know, we, we do, since 2008, we've done uh, monetary policy by paying interest on bank accounts. Um, but pass-through has not always been great. We had to create new facilities on the right side of the balance sheet to improve uh, pass-through. But if everyone had access to reserve balances, you wouldn't need to have, uh, you, we wouldn't have pass-through problems because there wouldn't necessarily need to pass interest through the banking system that people could have direct access to uh, accounts at the Fed, just like banks. So, uh, so that's the benefits. It wouldn't be expensive if you got a large-scale migration, particularly of large accounts. It actually would probably be revenue-enhancing, maybe, maybe significantly so for the federal government because of the seniorage implications, which again we can uh, we can explore uh, more later. Uh, in terms of central bank digital currency, th that discussion, you know, this is as I mentioned a way of doing that, but not with the distributed ledger. We're thinking of this as being. Um, being just on the Fed's existing le ledger. So this token-based versus account-based distinction, which has gained a lot of uh, attention in the central bank digital currency area is one that we think is a bit misplaced. And I'm happy to um, happy to touch on that also. So that, that's really my remarks. I, I, there's There are, uh, uh, of course, um, 
uh, some objections and drawbacks to this, and we discussed these at some length in the paper uh, relating to institutional competence, uh, uh, privacy issues, and, and civil liberties issues, uh, as well as other issues that I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, but we think on balance, those don't come, they really don't come close to outweighing the extraordinary, really potentially transformative benefits of, of opening up the right side of the Fed's balance sheet. So, um, so Diego, I'll, st I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Morgan. Our next speaker is Professor Lawrence White from George Mason University. Uh, Larry is also a senior fellow at Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And very pertinently for this discussion, he recently wrote against Fed provision of retail deposit accounts for the Wall Street Journal in a piece which I commend to you uh, because it has a for and an against. So I'm not taking sides by recommending it. Uh, Larry specializes in the theory and history of banking and money. And he is the author of several books, including The Clash of Economic Ideas, The Theory of Monetary Institutions, and Free Banking in Britain. His articles on monetary theory and banking history have appeared in the American Economic Review and other very highly reputed journals. With that, Larry, I'll give you the floor. Thank you, Diego. Uh, and thank you, Morgan, for uh, introducing your paper, which I recommend everyone read. Uh, it's a long paper, <laughs> uh, as law professors tend to write, but uh, it's well-written and it sets out the issues from uh, his side very well. So I see there being at least four major claims being made on behalf of uh, what he calls Fed accounts. And I'm glad he calls them Fed accounts because other people use the term central bank digital currency, which is a little misleading since it's not hand-to-hand -hand currency. It's not circulating outside the banking system without the banking system's knowledge, but rather it's an account-based uh, system where people would have accounts on the Fed's books. Uh, that's the proposal. Uh, so let me talk about the claimed benefits for this kind of system. I think the benefits are being overstated and I think the costs are being understated. Uh, first is that it'll make payments faster. And there is a problem of slow check clearing uh, that Diego also mentioned uh, in the United States. But the Fed could improve that without overhauling the entire uh, system or without opening its books to retail accounts uh, simply by making Fedwire open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, which remarkably it doesn't do now. Um, on the improvement of deposit transfer uh, facilities, so the, the argument is that this would make deposit transfer less costly uh, Deposit transfer is nearly costless today uh, at the margin. The problem is uh, covering the average cost or the, the fixed cost of setting up uh, a retail payment system on the books of the Federal Reserve. So the Fed has no experience at retail payments. As uh, Morgan said, it's, its expertise now, its experience now is in wholesale payments bank-to-bank -bank payments and bank-to-government payments. Uh, and so it would take a huge addition to the Fed's workforce if it's going to replicate the services that commercial banks provide in the sense of tellers. There are over 400,000 bank tellers in the United States, and they're not there for no reason. Banks are trying to 
uh, economize on their costs so they wouldn't be providing tellers unless the public wanted them, unless it was a condition of attracting depositors to that bank. Uh, and the Fed has nowhere near 400,000 employees. It has about 20,000 employees. So this would be a major change for the Fed if it wanted to provide the level of service uh, that customers are accustomed to. It would be a very expensive proposition. And I don't see any reason to think that the Fed would be better at it than commercial banks are. Uh, I mean, to, to be a little unfair, it's like proposing that we should turn the uh, payment system over to the post office. And we can expect the kind of uh, bureaucratic problems that the post office has uh, at the Fed if the Fed tried to provide retail service. Um, I think we want to certainly encourage technological innovation in the payment system, but the way to do that is to rely on the private sector. That's where the innovations come from. And that's who's given us convenient uh, digital dollars today in the form of PayPal and Venmo um, and those kinds of services, which are easy to use. Uh, the federal government has not been very successful at providing apps, let alone websites. Uh, so I think we're better off uh, leaving financial innovation in the private sector and uh, in the competitive sector is where we get what we rely upon for uh, technological innovation. Uh, Morgan mentioned monetary policy advantages of having accounts on the books of the Fed. Um, I don't really see that. The way interest on reserves works now is not by motivating the public, but by motivating the banks to increase or decrease the provision of deposits relative to reserves. Uh, and it isn't necessary to have members of the public have accounts on the books of the Fed to do that. Um, Morgan referred to this as a kind of a public option. And I think if you look around the world at public options, say Petro Canada, uh, you'll be disappointed at the performance of federal government institutions or state government institutions at providing, I mean, think of state run liquor stores at providing retail services. I don't think the track record there is very good. Uh, we do have a lot of underbanked in the United States as uh, Diego and Morgan both mentioned, uh, but we also have neighborhoods in the United States that don't have enough supermarkets, but I wouldn't advocate the federal government building supermarkets as a way of uh, solving that problem. Uh, and so that's most of what I have to say about it, but there is the privacy issue that Morgan mentioned and didn't uh, go into. Uh, it's, it's chilling, I think, to think of the federal government man, uh, managing bank accounts uh, for everyone in the country because it makes everyone's bank account visible to them directly. Uh, I think it's valuable today to have a buffer where your account is at a commercial bank. Uh, it's the information on your changes in your account balances don't go directly to any agency of the federal government, although they can request that information if they uh, have a reason to. Uh, the Chinese government, as uh, Diego mentioned, is market is testing uh, a digital currency system. And it's pretty clear there that their motivation is to be able to monitor everyone's 
money usage. They explicitly want to phase out paper currency, uh, which they have trouble uh, tracking the use of. But right, civil liberties are obviously an, an issue. Now, I don't want to compare the US government to the uh, Chinese government. But if you think that the US government isn't capable of abusing uh, its power, in particular, bank regulators aren't capable of abusing their power, I invite you to look up Operation Choke Point, in which the FDIC, in conjunction with the Department of Justice, uh, pressured commercial banks to close the accounts of businesses, perfectly legal businesses, that were politically disfavored at the time. Uh, gun shops, pornographers, disfavored on either side of the political spectrum. Uh, eventually this program was exposed and shut down, but uh, I think it's kind of a chilling warning uh, of the sort of privacy concerns we need to have uh, if everybody has a bank account on the books of the federal government. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. That, that summarizes uh, my main concerns. Larry, thank you very much. Our final speaker giving introductory remarks is Jeremy Allaire, and I'm very happy that he's joined us because he brings a very welcome markets perspective on current developments in the digital currency space outside of central bank provision. Jeremy is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Circle, a blockchain technology services provider that is behind USDC, which is currently the biggest stablecoin with $719 million issued, uh, outstanding. Now, previously, Jeremy co-founded and led multiple technology companies, many of which are listed, and he's provided expert testimony on digital assets and monetary policy before the US Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, the Senate Banking Committee, and he's been named to the International uh, Monetary Fund High-Level Advisory Group on FinTech. So he brings a lot of expertise and perspective. And Jeremy, maybe you can begin by correcting me uh, whether the outstanding amount is 719 million or billion. Maybe I got it wrong in my notes. Thank you. Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Um, I, I think we've issued, or we've seen issued uh, almost two and a half billion um, USDC. The current number in circulation is, is uh, I think around 725, that's right. Uh, but thank you, Diego. Thank you for the introduction and for putting together this this forum, um, you know, I, I wanted to share a few remarks and, and I think, uh, you know, are, are largely complementary to the other panelists as well in, in different ways. So maybe just <clears throat> dialing back a little bit, uh, the, the first is just to sort of, you know, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, where, uh, you know, where this work is anchored. So in, in 2008, obviously we had a significant financial crisis and, uh, one of the things that grew out of that was, um, you know, an effort from technologists to think about uh, ways that we could create uh, a safer uh, infrastructure for money <clears throat> and, and one that, uh, you know, potentially was modeled on full reserve banking uh, models that, that didn't, uh, you know, face some of the severity that you see from credit risk taking uh, in the financial sector. Um, and but also safer in the sense that, uh, you know, built on advances in cryptography that could provide for uh, greater security, um, greater uh, privacy. Um, and, and then also, I think, just really modeled on 
the tremendous success we've seen with just the growth of the internet and protocols on the internet that have allowed us to have infinite access to all of the world's knowledge, free global communications, uh, the interoperability of all these things for every person everywhere that's connected um, to bring that to money as well. And so I, I think that inspired um, fundamental breakthroughs in blockchain technology. It inspired a lot of, I think, really great entrepreneurs, technologists and economists, others to, to get involved in a movement around digital currency and blockchain technology. Um, and, you know, th th that, um, you know, that, you know, that, again, was in response to the global financial crisis of 2008. And I think what we're seeing happen now is with the, the this new global economic crisis, which is clearly far, far more severe than the, the Great Recession um, and has much more far uh, reaching consequences in terms of counterparty risk, uh, trust, uh, and, and some of the more fundamental elements of the functioning of the economic system, this pandemic economy, which may go on for some time and will certainly change the architecture of the global economy um, is accelerating um, interest in these technologies. Uh, and it's accelerating, I think, uh, uh, you know, major actors in the existing payment system, as well as, you know, you know I think major technology companies um, to, to start working on this. So, you know, our focus has been on uh, this idea of taking uh, central bank money um, and issuing digital currencies that are, you know, backed by that central bank money, but issuing it as a, a, a form of digital cash that can work on the public internet. And so, you know, the, the, the vernacular is stable coins um, on public blockchains, but very specifically, it's coming up with um, uh, frameworks for uh, financial institutions, regulated financial institutions to be able to issue uh, in, in the first instance, U.S. dollar coins um, and have a reserve model, uh, which is, you know, backing each of those uh, coins in circulation with fundamentally short-term U.S. government um, sovereign debt, which is very high quality, but imbuing those coins with the utility value of the Internet. So the same kinds of things that we have today on the Internet, which is I can send data anywhere instantly at no cost. I can communicate with anyone instantly at no cost. I can uh, search and access all the world's knowledge instantly and at no cost. We want to take those digital capabilities that are built on the open internet and protocols that allow for exchange on the internet and do that with this, this type of, of um, you know, Fed money, uh, government money backed digital currency. And that has some really incredible benefits. Uh, so you get, a form of digital cash that uh, can be exchanged uh, between anyone really that's connected on the internet, between people, between people and businesses, between devices and other devices um, at effectively a cost approaching zero. You can do those transactions with no counterparty risk because these are like cash, uh, they're bare instruments and they, they settle nearly instantly uh, and very securely. You can do these based on standards so that this form of money is interoperable. So, you know, if, if Venmo supports uh, U.S. dollar coin and uh, uh, another firm in another part of the world supports that same protocol, you can exchange value the same way we can exchange email, no matter what email service that we use. And then critically, um, it creates an infrastructure. And this is really the breakthrough of, of uh, second and third generation um, public blockchains where 
those digital currency units are programmable and you can start to uh, not just uh, have value exchange that's instant global free and secure, you can also have programmable contracts. And so in a world where we are facing greater and greater levels of counterparty risk, where trade relationships, economic contracts and other things, you know, we need to have um, different kinds of enforcement, I think there's really significant innovation that becomes possible there. So um, that's the framework that we've approached this with. As you noted, um, US dollar coin is the fastest growing full reserve regulated US dollar stablecoin in the world. It's been growing very fast in this pandemic context with demand globally. And there's a governance model around it, which I'd be happy to talk more about through the center consortium, which um, you can imagine as a little bit like a SWIFT or the original Visa Association. It creates a model for private sector actors to work together. And final comment here is just, um, we fundamentally believe in a full reserve banking model, and we believe that digital currency should work in that way. That is in fact how the Chinese digital currency is gonna function as well. It's a full reserve digital currency model. Um, but we also believe that over time, really, you know, these kinds of uh, schemes um, and and, their, and the technology standards, the private sector can drive a lot of that, but ultimately the backstop should be Fed accounts. And I do believe there's an opportunity for, uh, you know, fintech companies and innovators to um, really be chartered to issue uh, these kinds of digital currency units and, and service people all around the world with them. Thank you, Jeremy. That is an excellent segue to the discussion I wanted to lead, uh, because I'm curious how you envisage that fintech access to central bank accounts. Uh, some of the people I talk to in the industry, for example, you know, if, if you think about what the Libra Association has proposed and some of the other stablecoin providers, they're talking about having non-depository institutions hold accounts at the central bank and they would then settle with other institutions. Is that what you envisage as well? Or are you talking about households having direct access? No, not talking about households. So the, just for example, the way the center consortium works is you have these minting issuers, uh, Circle's an example of that, uh, Coinbase as well, and there are other major firms that are um, going to be doing that through center consortium. Um, you know, minting issuers are, are minting and burning these digital currency units, uh, but they are, they are held in reserve in money center banks in the U.S. with very strict uh, investment policies tied to short-term U.S. government securities. Um, so that, that's sort of the nature of it. And I think the interesting thing is if you wanted to do this, you know, really at scale and with the involvement of the Fed, um, you can imagine that, you know, these sort of um, digital currency issuers um, that are operating in these uh, new types of, uh, you know, payment systems uh, could themselves actually hold accounts with the Fed. That's, that's certainly something that would be interesting but not at the retail level. But effectively, the, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, stable coins like USDC are, are a form of, of digital cash. Uh, these are not account-based, these are token-based and, and they behave like digital cash. You can have them be intermediated, you can have account level restrictions, you can have compliance controls around them and so forth. But uh, to, a, to a holder of USDC, um, you know, that is that is very similar to the, the kind of, you know, uh, you know, when you look at the face of a dollar bill, it, it is this uh, sovereign uh, obligation that you're holding. It's, it has some proximity to that and, and behaves somewhat similarly uh, to that. Thank you. 
Um, as a reminder to our audience, please do send us your questions on the event page or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCovid. And I will get to those very shortly. I'm just warming up our speakers with some of my own questions. The next one is for Morgan. Um, there, are, there are a lot of concerns, I think it is fair to say right now, about the amazing growth in the Fed's balance sheet in a very short period of time as a result of all the operations it's conducting to inject liquidity across the US economy. And there were reports uh, that it was that balance sheet had reached a size close to seven trillion, but moving retail and commercial deposits to the Fed's balance sheet would increase it by around, in my estimate, around 10 or 11 additional trillion. So it would be a completely dramatic change to the size of the assets that the Fed holds. Now, my question is, how do you respond to the argument that this will fundamentally affect credit allocation, and if not necessarily the amount of credit allocated into the economy, then the relative price, the cost of credit across different assets? I think you're muted, Morgan. Sorry about that. Uh uh, great question, and um, I think the uh, uh, one way to think about this is to start by thinking about sort of the mechanics of migration. I mean, we have you know several trillion dollars of excess reserves and growing in the banking system right now. So, Diego, let's suppose you let's suppose the Fed starts to offer a Fed accounts, and you're the you're an enthusiastic uh, 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 person who wants to use it. And you're the first person in you, your bank account, you have $10,000 at Bank of America or what have you, and you transfer that over to the Fed, what happens? Well, Bank of America has a lot of excess reserves, so it just has a, a reduction of its excess reserves. And the Fed's balance sheet actually does not, does not expand at that point, right? It debits the account of Bank of America and credits Diego's account. And so there's several trillion dollars worth of room for migration that is just draining excess reserves from the banking system and doesn't add to the Fed's uh, the Fed's asset portfolio. And uh, so 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 that's the first way of thinking about this. Now you're right. If you had um, if you had really large scale migration and the, the sort of boundary case, all say all deposits and maybe a lot of deposit substitutes also migrate over to the, the Fed, then yes, you're going to have an expansion of the Fed's balance sheet at that point. And, and a lot of the transformative benefits of Fed account uh, depend on pretty large scale migration. Uh, and so what happens then? Well, you know, at, at, when excess reserves are drained, uh, the Fed would have to, uh, unless it wanted a liquidity crisis, uh, replace the lost deposit funding of the banks with discount window loans, and at least in the first instance. And so you would see an increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet reflecting uh, lending to the banking system. Now, in terms of in terms of the the uh, risk um, incurred by the consolidated federal government, this really isn't an increase. Uh, so provided you assume that the federal government, whether through the Fed or the FDIC, is essentially standing behind all this money-like stuff already, uh, which it, it pretty, uh, it's hard to argue that it isn't to a very large degree standing behind virtually all the money and money substitutes in the private sector. And so from an aggregated uh, risk standpoint, the federal government, when there's large-scale migration, is not taking any further risk than it already did. Now, now, to, now, now to get to your specific question about credit allocation, Supposing that uh, discount window loans 
were replacing lost deposit funding after excess reserves were drained. Uh, that has no implications for the asset side of the balance sheet at all. Uh, the Fed is going to charge, uh, hopefully, a, a fair rate for uh, for the loan that it's extending. But we already hope that it's charging a fair rate for deposit insurance, and that that is a, a risk based uh, system with risk based fees. To the extent we're not charging for the guarantee, that's a subsidy, and we should be charging for it. So, if anything, we think this is sort of a right sizing of the uh, of of the. Uh, uh, of the risk taken by the federal government and its compensation for the risk that it's taking, you know, through the cycle. Uh, it, it, in terms of if the cost of the balance sheet, if banks' costs went up uh, uh, by virtue of discount window loans uh, versus having uh, access to deposit funding, they of course always have the option to go finance themselves in the capital markets, and uh, and and. Uh, and we should expect capital to flow to where uh, to, to if there are if there are excess returns that are earnable in the lending markets, the capital should be expected to flow there. So there's not there's no obvious reason why there would really be any effects uh, effect on credit uh, market uh, allocation or costs of credit. And one more thing I would say about this is if you think about the, sort of just the aggregate size of the uh, U.S. credit markets. And the banks, banking system's role in those credit markets. You know, we have U.S. lending markets are about 25 trillion. Uh, bond markets are another 45-ish trillion. So we're already up to 70 trillion dollars of debt claims. Most of that is not funded by the banking system. It's funded by all sorts of institutions, including uh, including investment companies, of course, insurance companies. Uh, so, so we shouldn't assume that the uh, that credit is predominantly offered by the banking system. That just isn't the case. Thank you, Morgan. Larry, the flip side of the question I asked Morgan is that a lot of people say that, in fact, the provision of transaction accounts by central banks needn't have a tremendous amount or needn't imply a tremendous amount of intrusion into the private side of the financial sector to the extent that you would have the private sector providing the customer interfaces, the apps, the wallets that people would actually use, and perhaps central banks might even auction off some of the li liabilities, the increase in liabilities that they would get from providing deposit accounts. And therefore, you would still preserve a large role for uh, market forces and competition within this. What do you respond to that? Well, we have to look separately at the two sides of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, if the Fed is taking on retail deposits, then that's certainly a change in the role of commercial banks. They are no longer providing at least uh, as many uh, retail payment accounts. And the Fed is going to have to take on the grubby business of servicing accounts, answering questions, dealing with people who have trouble clearing checks and foreign exchange and all the sorts of things that bank tellers now do. And as I said before, I don't see any reason to think they're very good at that. They have no experience at it. They have no reason to think they have a comparative advantage at it. They may be uh, good at wholesale payments, but this is an entirely different business. And then if we look at the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, we can imagine, uh, and the asset side of the commercial bank's balance sheets, we can imagine the Fed auctioning off all of the funds that it now has available to it by virtue of public keeping their checking accounts at the Fed directly. Uh, 
But that's not the kind of process we actually see when the federal government gets into, uh, and when the, when, even when the Fed gets into uh, allocating credit to banks. If we look at what's happening right now in the allocation of the uh, PPP lending, uh, the lending to, I forget all the names of the programs, but there's lending to small businesses and large businesses and so on. It's been very far from a neutral allocation of credit that preserves the shares of the market that large banks and small banks, large businesses and small businesses have in the market for loanable funds. And so if we look at what we've actually experienced rather than imagine the best it could be, then it's hard to be as enthusiastic about the proposition that this is going to be completely neutral with respect to the allocation of credit. I think we have to be concerned with the way the the credit gets back into the private sector. Um, Thanks, Larry. Jeremy, can you come into this question about privacy that is often raised from an academic viewpoint about the powers that central banks have, that private institutions don't have? and some of the surveillance that already happens in the financial system. Of course, we know that there are some technological implementations on for private digital currencies anyway, that allow for the preservation of privacy to the point that two parties exchanging funds don't even have to know who the other person is. They can know the other person's identity and the, tra and the transaction can be verified without revealing who they actually are. Can you expand on that and whether that's applicable to this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very applicable. I mean, I think, um, you know, th this is an issue that faces the internet as a whole. It's not just an issue around money. It's it's a fundamental issue um, around what are human rights in civil society? Uh, should a, uh, an activist in, uh, you know, Syria be targeted because they use Telegram or WhatsApp in an encrypted form? Um, should people have the ability to um, conduct transactions privately? Um, cash obviously is a form of private um, bearer instrument um, and digital currency um, can, can operate in a lot of different ways. It can operate with total government surveillance um, and it can operate a, as, a, as a completely blind digital cash. And the, you know, the, the issues that are happening right now, and this is all happening um, and being built out as, as we speak, I mean, international... Um, uh, you know, financial regulators through the Financial Action Task Force, um, you know, have sort of provided guidelines to FATF members around record keeping obligations for digital currency transactions. Um, intermediaries that are involved in those transactions um, are, are, you know, bas basically being regulated almost everywhere um, as financial services businesses. And so there, there is, a, you know, that kind of tracking, but there is a very real risk here as digital currency explodes in use, and, and it very clearly will over the next two years, well ahead of any kind of Fed digital dollar, um, there will be digital dollars that are in the hands of potentially billions of people around the world. Um, and, um, you know, there are there are very legitimate privacy considerations. Um, and so um, the, the kind of traditional social contract where a financial institution is tasked with and legally required to be an arm of law enforcement. They must be tracking, policing, trying to find suspicious activity, reporting that to uh, national police authorities, actively 
being involved in subpoena responses and, and doing that kind of privately in the background. Um, that's a that's a social contract if you want to uh, hold account-based digital money uh, today um, or deal with cash and, and things like that. And how those exist in uh, a digital cash world are, are new challenges. Um, I think that um, society hasn't yet made up its mind on this topic. I, I think certainly regulators have a point of view, um, but you know, I, I think uh, you know, people are gonna vote with their smartphones around the world on this issue. Um, they're gonna vote uh, for what economic system, what currency system they wanna participate in. They're gonna vote for what level of, of privacy they wanna have as they do today with um, communications and freedom of speech. So, um, you know, I think these are profound issues um, and, uh, and irrespective of what might happen with the Fed digital dollar, um, you know, stable coins and, and private sector innovations and non-sovereign digital currency as well, which is exploding in use uh, also, um, you know, these, these are, you know, fundamentally privacy preserving technologies, but uh, with, I think, the wrong regulatory moves um, could be um, extremely powerful forms of, of state surveillance as well. Thank you. Um, Morgan, in your papers on Fed accounts, you mention that in fact, their existence might even generate positive net revenue for the Fed, for the treasury, and you say that that's the case, even though deposit accounts would carry the interest rate on excess reserves that currently the Fed pays to its member banks, and even though there would be no interchange fees on debit card transactions. Um, can you briefly take us through the sort of calculations that lead you to that um, assertion or that estimate? Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, the, the Fed is a, is a moneymaker for the federal government and has been for a long time on the order of, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's about to go way up. It was a few years ago at sort of around $100 billion a year in seniors that have passed back to Treasury. I think that had come down to closer to 50 or 60 in the last uh, uh, year or so as uh, as rates went up. And now we're going to see it. We're going to surely see it explode. So so the, the basis for thinking this is that, uh, the Fed earns uh, earns um, returns on the asset side of its balance sheet, and uh, and then it has to pay its expenses, and the rest it hands over to Treasury. If if you uh, for the for the Fed account system to be a money maker for the Fed would require uh, it to win uh, uh, large accounts and not just small accounts. The small accounts will be a money loser. I think it's fair to say, uh, without question. Because uh, just the account, the fixed costs that Larry referred to earlier, um, and the customer service costs uh, will not be um, will not be paid for out of the incremental uh, asset earning revenue of the Fed. But if you're able to get the big guys, and I alluded to this earlier, I mean, think of the tech giants, a couple of which have cash, quote unquote, cash portfolios in excess of 100 billion dollars. Uh, this is true also of. Uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and, and various other institutions that would really uh, benefit from having, being able to park cash the way JP Morgan does. Uh, JP Morgan doesn't have to worry about investing and in managing its cash balance by 
uh, investing in all sorts of deposit substitutes of different kinds because it has access to an account at the Federal Reserve that is both more secure. It's a pure sovereign account. It's uh, it's a direct transaction transactional account. This is funds that are uh, directly usable, and it earns more interest than the alternatives uh, usually, unless it, unless you go out the curve, and then you're giving up on transactability and you're taking some interest rate risk. And so uh, so if you're able, and I don't think there's any reason to think the Fed wouldn't be able to win large accounts if it truly was offering this as a public option, that those would be very profitable uh, in in most states of the world, uh, and could and we expect would. If you got a lot, a lot of that migration over uh, from large accounts, uh, more than pay for the cost of offering uh, of offering retail services. So, um, so that the, the basis for thinking this could be a money maker is uh, depends on uh, winning winning over some big accounts. I'd say one more thing on this in terms of the attractiveness. You know, um, uh, financial market utilities in, in recent years got access to Federal Reserve accounts that they didn't have access to previously by virtue of being designated by the FSOC and so forth, they were able to get accounts. And they were really excited about this. This was something that they wanted. It was a way for them to do uh, cash management more readily and to earn more interest income than they were before. Uh, so I think you would see a lot of appetite by uh, cash managers and corporate treasurers to have Fed accounts. And I think that would be profitable for the Fed. I will just remark that it's true. The, the evidence seems to suggest that often when you get runs on banks historically, it was the commercial deposit holders who would find themselves above the insurance limit that often ran first, and they tend to be more sophisticated as well. But Larry, how do you respond to uh, Morgan's um, estimates about cost, and do you disagree? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad he concedes that the uh, retail accounts of small Households and small businesses will likely be money losers because that seems pretty clear to me. Uh, I'm I'd have to get down with a you know piece of paper and pencil to figure out where the profit is supposed to be coming from from having big accounts. So these are apparently customers who the Fed is going to earn some spread on, which means the Fed is paying less interest than the Fed is earning on its treasury bills. And yet this is supposed to be attractive to customers who themselves could uh, hold treasury bills. They're not small households for which that's too big of a chunk. So why exactly they would prefer to get the lower return on uh, interest on reserves than the interest on treasury bills is a little bit puzzling to me. I'm not exactly sure where the profit is, where that willingness to park the money with the Fed comes from. Um, I mean, I, I suppose there are certain uh, interest rate risks that are avoided by staying at the short end of the spectrum, but you can do that with treasury bills as well as with an account on the books of the Fed. Uh, but I want to emphasize uh, that the when the Fed becomes the holder of everybody's account and when the Fed is expected to auction funds back to the banking system, then it's impossible to avoid credit allocation becoming a political issue, right? There are lots of people who, uh, in Congress who have agendas for the Fed. And if they pursue those agendas by legislation, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, there are at least some constitutional checks on it. But if it's 
the Fed could, you know, decide that certain kinds of banks are not to be encouraged because their policies are not the kind we like, and it no longer takes legislation to um, bring them into line, then that has to be very concerning. So on the latter on the latter point about credit allocation, I mean, I just want to reemphasize the point that there, there, there's, we're not restricting entry into lending, and uh, and, and no aspect of this proposal does that. And if there are profitable lending opportunities, we should expect the private sector to fare it out. I mean, let's think about it this way: suppose the Fed, uh, in, in the first instance, lent discount window credit for their lost for banks' lost deposits, but then over time reduced that credit and substitute, substituted for it uh, more treasury securities. Um, uh, you can imagine the Fed sticking with an all treasury or nearly all treasury balance sheet. And then the, and then the lenders in the economy would have to find other sources of non-money claim funding, non-deposit funding in order to finance their lending. But by virtue of having taken so many treasuries out of circulation, uh, uh, there would be more funds available to crowd in additional private sector lending. So there, there's multiple ways of thinking about how the asset side of the balance sheet could uh, could evolve for the Fed that don't necessarily involve it in any credit allocation decisions at all for the private sector. On the other hand, maybe we want to encourage some, say, geographic distribution and credit. And you could think about banks more as portfolio uh, allocators uh, for the Fed if it does maintain discount credit outstanding uh, indefinitely, but but there's no you know there's no one model that the Fed would have to follow, uh, and Congress uh, needs to pass legislation in order to make Fed account available anyway, and the Congress can have a role to say in the way that uh, the, the credit uh, does get allocated. Uh, so so uh, we just shouldn't we shouldn't think that banks are the only lenders in the economy. There are uh, there are a lot of different lending institutions, and nothing about the proposal encourages or uh, or uh, involves uh, restricting entry into the lending markets. That's uh, that's that's something that we think capital markets uh, uh, should should be open. Well, I appreciate that you're Thanks. not shutting um, down Larry, small business Larry, lending. Larry, I'm, yeah. going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to move on to the audience questions because otherwise we won't get time for them. And Jeremy, I know that you have to leave us a little bit early. Uh, and I just hope that's because this uh, webinar has prompted an enormous amount of attention and demand for USDC that you have to uh, cater to. Uh, but uh, before that, let me ask, in connection with the privacy question I asked you earlier, one of our viewers has asked about the open banking angle on this, specifically whether giving consumers financial data rights that are explicit could help address whether we have private digital currencies or CBDC or both, some of the privacy concerns that you outlined. You have to unmute yourself. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I may answer it a little bit differently. I mean, my belief is that um, every person with a mobile phone in the world should be able to um, have a digital wallet uh, where they can self-custody digital cash. And um, that that's the equivalent of, of having an account. Um, I think ideally um, people would know that the, the digital cash that they're holding uh, whether they choose to hold it themselves or with a custodian, um, you know what the underlying you know instrument is that that 
token is is based on and ideally that's based on you know uh you know sovereign you know very strict forms of of sovereign uh cash or credit um and i think um you know that you know that that is is critical and and providing people with the ability to you know have private transactions in that context is is also really critical as well um so i, I think that's sort of where where the world seems to be headed um in, in the coming couple of years. Thank you. Uh, an anonymous question wondered, um, Morgan, whether we could address some of the issues about the American unbanked by having free accounts that everyone could have access to. I imagine uh, he or she is referring to something like the Canadian system where everybody who applies for a deposit account is entitled to one. Wouldn't that be a lower cost way of addressing uh, financial inclusion? And in connection to that, is it the case that a lot of the unbanked really just don't want to have a bank account and therefore we're never really going to get through to some of them? Yeah, so, you know, on the first point, um, I, look, I, I think I think some kind of universal service mandate to the banking system is another way of doing it. Um, I, I suspect that uh, the resistance to Fed account itself um, would... Uh, for some, uh, for for related reasons, I think a lot of people have for a long time, for many decades, resisted the idea that we should have any kind of universal service mandate on the banking system. But other countries do. It's a way of getting greater penetration, and I agree that if we were to do that, it would uh, it would uh, reduce the uh, uh, that particular benefit. Uh, that particular benefit of, of that account is achievable at least in theory through regulatory means as opposed to other other means uh, but as opposed to fed account but 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 keep in mind that fed account um, does offer all these other transformational benefits in terms of stability in terms of payment speed in terms of reducing costs of payments uh, and in terms of monetary policy implementation that would not be addressed by universal service mandate so uh, um, um, so so that's uh, so so you you could get uh, you could get, you, you arguably could get a good bit of the way there by doing it like other countries, but you're not going to get all the other benefits that that account offers. Thanks for that, uh, uh, of, Larry. It's, 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 it's just one other point. Um, it's it's more difficult to mandate universal service uh, the more fragmented your banking system is, and uh, Canada obviously has a very very different model from ours. Uh, but uh, but that's another reason why universal service mandates uh, might be less effective in the U.S. than they are elsewhere. Larry, do you have any confidence in the objection? to your own uh, concerns about privacy that some people make, that we have the technology to make central bank digital currencies, or you, you prefer to call them Fed accounts, uh, privacy friendly. And why, what are they and, and why, why, would you, why would you not put so much weight on them? Well, I'd have to look at the particular technology, uh, but the issue isn't whether it would be possible to make the accounts uh, opaque to regulatory authorities. The question is whether the veil of opaqueness would be lifted on the request of federal agencies that want information from the Fed. Um, and I, I guess I have a particular interest in the 
in preserving privacy in the form of um, financial privacy. And that means not all transactions are transparent uh, to who ICE, the DEA, the FBI, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, um, who like to go on information fishing expeditions. Um, and so I'm, I'm worried that any kind of barrier that's set up, uh, any kind of protocol that's set up to deny them information on request will be breached. Can I, can I say a quick word about privacy? Because I haven't really touched on it yet, and it's come up multiple times. So uh, ju just two points. Um, the first is uh, that um, you know, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't conflate the technology with privacy. You can have permissioned or permissionless distributed ledgers, and you could have permissioned or permissionless uh, centralized ledgers. You could imagine uh, there's no technological reason you couldn't have anonymous or pseudonymous ability to open an account at the Fed, and that's really ultimately a policy decision. Uh, we could have it be like opening a Gmail account where you don't really have any, you know, uh, uh, identity verification. I don't think we would go down that route for, for the reasons that we have the Bank Secrecy Act, but we shouldn't conflate the technology with the policy decision itself. The second point I want to make is, uh, you know, we shouldn't overstate the degree to which bank accounts themselves are, uh, 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 we shouldn't overstate the degree to which existing bank accounts are private. They don't receive Fourth Amendment protection. Uh, there are voluminous reports of suspicious activity that go to the Treasury Department that are searchable by um, law enforcement agencies. And we can address that policy question in and of itself, but don't assume that the existing system is, uh, is, uh, is safeguarding privacy when it comes to account money. And the third point I would make is Look, we do have models, and I, I take Larry's point. I think this is a very serious point about privacy and civil liberties, and I, I, we're, we don't mean to dismiss these concerns at all. Uh, we think they're a very serious area that needs to be thought about in, in, this, in this regard. But keep in mind, A, that these we're, we're, we're offering a public, we're suggesting a public option here, not something that's mandatory. Um, those with privacy concerns uh, uh, would presumably not open Fed accounts. Uh, the other point being, we do have models in the federal government, particularly the IRS, which has a lot of sensitive financial information on individuals, uh, and we have a legal framework around access to that. It's a criminal offense uh, for uh, IRS uh, personnel to release that information or even in some cases to view information on individual taxpayers or access it. Uh, they can go to prison for that. Uh, we have, uh, uh, th there needs to be a court order for uh, the IRS to offer uh, that information to law enforcement agencies. It's not as though the FBI can just walk over to the Treasury Department and sift through your IRS records. Uh, this is, we do have models, in other words, for, uh, for handling these issues. And I don't, I don't want to pretend that those are always perfect or that they could never be breached. But it's also not the case that once something goes to a federal government agency, it's automatically available to any law enforcement or intelligence agency. On the contrary, we have uh, we have models in place in the federal government to deal with this kind of problem. Morgan, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the connection that certainly some politicians make between the provision of retail deposit accounts and the U.S. Postal Service. And there are all sorts of legislative proposals, but some of them do involve lending. Now, 
regardless of the efficiency benefits that you've outlined, and I know that your analysis is restricted to deposit accounts, no credit provision or even overdraft facilities uh, by government institutions, but do you share the worries that some people have about the potential for then misallocation of credit and potentially taxpayer exposure to very significant losses? Uh, losses by virtue of, of the FedCap proposal itself? Is that the question? The losses by le lending that would be conducted under auspices of the government with, well, partly with deposits from uh, Fed accounts, but also ultimately at a cost that is below the, the risk of some of the borrowers. Well, look, this is, again, a problem that we have already. We have we ensured that we already back the deposit base of the banking system as, as a, the public. We do that. Uh, we Yes, there's a deposit insurance cap, but as everyone remembers back in 2008, when, when things really got ugly, we lifted, uh, we removed the deposit insurance cap and said all non-interest bearing transaction accounts were, uh, were uh, fully insured. And I think it would be, um, it would be a little, little naive to think that the federal government isn't already standing by, behind uh, most of the money claims issued by the private sector. And again, we see it when uh, outside of the deposit context in the money market mutual fund context and in the institutional deposit substitute context, whether it's repo or uh, financial commercial paper, we as a public are standing behind that already. And so if this is a question of losses or risk bearing by the federal government, I would say we already have that on a huge scale. And in fact, we should be pricing. One of the benefits of Fed account, if it did get large scale migration, uh, is uh, that it would reduce those uh, rents that are currently extracted by pretty large swaths of the U.S. financial system. So, um, so, so I, I'm not worried about uh, the Fe the federal government on a consolidated basis taking more risk under this proposal. On the con on the contrary, I think it would be uh, at least being paid for the risk that it's required to undertake to stand behind the monetary system. Larry. One questioner, also anonymous, it seems that some of the people asking the best questions don't want you to know who they are. Um, he or she uh, is asking whether you, let me pull it out, whether you um, are aware of the distinction between stable coins, private stable coins, and CBDC, and I know you are, uh, but then he or she wants to know your views on stable coins and whether you have any concerns of a prudential or uh, monetary of any or any other nature. Um, so I'll leave it there for you. I think, yeah, I think stable coins are very interesting. Uh, remains to be tested in the market to see just how popular they can become. Uh, I think stable coins are uh, dollar linked stable coins are a potential route, for example, in the rest of the world for a kind of spontaneous dollarization where dollar-denominated bank accounts are not available and where having a coin that's transactable through your cell phone is more convenient than using Federal Reserve notes. Um, customers of uh, stable coins need to do diligence as to what are the assets that the issuer uh, is actually backing the coins with. Um, Jeremy referred to a full reserve model, but I noticed that he didn't mean 100% cash reserve. Uh, he meant backed by U.S. government treasury bonds. So there are interest-bearing reserves held by the coin issuers. Um, what's 
the, the it's a full reserve in the sense that all the reserve assets are uh, risk free, I guess. But it's not the traditional model of 100% cash reserves. Uh, and of course, there are other kinds of stable coins. Uh, there are gold link stable coins. There's Tether Gold now, and so it's an interesting arena where people can uh, choose the risks and returns and the convenience features. Um, so other than the sort of usual caveat emptor uh, concerns, I think this is something that uh, has a great potential and it's an example of a market-based innovation that uh, we should allow to flourish to the extent that it can. Could I offer a note of skepticism on that? So, um, you know, I think what we've learned from financial history is that every time money substitutes, at least dollar-denominated money substitutes, uh, get created, new classes of them get created, um, they tend to be unstable. And when that instability arises, we have the federal government forced to step in and back it. And and you can think of repo as uh, my a kind reading of is very different. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, uh, this is this. Uh, hopefully, if we have time, we can go into this a little more. But whether it's repo, whether it's asset-backed commercial paper, whether it's the euro-dollar markets, which are a four trillion-ish dollar market that we stand behind through central bank liquidity swaps, on and on and on, and whether it's money market mutual funds, I mean, every single category I can think of, Larry, we've stood behind. And it, stable coins well, risk being the next the, the, the next frontier of dollar-denominated money substitutes that are ultimately backed by the U.S. public because they have to be, because they promote fire sales. We've seen, we saw fire sales in the U.S. Treasury security market in March, um, which we had really never seen before, but a run on Treasury repo was underway. And th this stuff tends to malfunction, and it doesn't really serve the public interest very well. Uh, we can be, uh, we, 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 can, we can celebrate and should celebrate uh, innovation uh, and private capital markets uh, private allocation of credit, uh, but money is, is something where the public sector has always needed to be involved and private monies have tended to have problems. And I know Larry, and Larry, I have read your book and read it when I wrote my own book uh, and admire it a great deal, uh, but we just see this stuff very differently. I, I worry the stable coins will just be the next, uh, the next frontier of dollar denominated money substitutes that the public is going to have to backstop. I think it's important that too big to fail coverage not be extended to stable coins. And I think we should roll it back from the money substitutes that you just mentioned. Uh, but in the presence of too big to fail, yeah, there's a big moral hazard problem. That's why we need to limit too big to fail. And uh, that's what I see being the, the real problem here, the real uh, camel in the tent. But uh, privately issued money and money substitutes are not themselves the problem, uh, provided we have a caveat emptor policy and we allow the poorly managed institutions to fail. Thank you. George Selgin of our own parish wonders if CBDCs really wouldn't have that much of an impact on financial stability because you would still get shadow bank runs namely wholesale funding crises, uh, and that market wouldn't be affected by the existence of Fed accounts. How do you respond to that, Morgan? Yeah, I mean, it depends on crowding out those institutional deposit substitutes. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the only way it would really help financial stability. So you'd have to have a lot of these institutional deposit substitutes that uh, asset managers and corporate treasurers, et cetera, are currently 
uh, parking cash and money market funds, which ultimately goes to repo or euro dollars. If they prefer the Fed, uh, then you're going to see shrinkage of those markets. Uh, and that, and but but yes, the financial stability benefits really depend on that sort of crowding out uh, of those other uh, money substitutes. You know, I, uh, Jeremy Stein at Harvard. Um, uh, had a paper uh, a few years ago in which he suggested that we should issue more treasury bills, shift to a shorter term, uh, he and his co-authors, shift to a shorter term duration of the treasury department's liability structure precisely in order to crowd out all the unstable or some portion of the unstable um, deposit substitutes, institutional deposit substitutes that we see. And so this is another way of doing that. We're just saying do it through the Fed and not the treasury department. Thank you, Morgan. I'm afraid that's all that we have time for today, but uh, it, I, I hope you'll agree with me that it's been a fascinating discussion. And one of the benefits we will have in the US as a result of being more of a laggard in fast payments and in some of these questions is that we get to see the experiments that other countries are conducting, countries as varied as the People's Republic of China or the United Kingdom. And we can learn from that whether the predictions that we heard today materialize and to what extent they do so. With that, I would like to thank uh, our speakers wholeheartedly for joining us today and for their expertise in the discussion of what really is a, um, an intersection of extremely uh, complicated questions uh, with legislative implications as well as financial ones and how expertly they delved into those and hopefully in a way that a lot of you uh, in the audience found helpful. So Larry, Morgan, Jeremy, thank you very much. And from uh, the, C the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, I thank you and I hope you continue to enjoy our work and follow discussions on social media and online while we have to and to see you all again soon.